0: Law Focus Podcast. Podcast, bringing you the facts, handing you your rights. This is Law Focus.
1: Welcome to Law Focus, the show with a staunch focus on the law. My name is Veronica Mahwadi, your voice of law for the evening, right here on VFM 88.1. Tonight, we will reflect on the month of August, which we have honoured as Women's Month. But it is quite unfortunate that uh, during the month, we seem to have a hike in the amount of gender-based violence that happens in the country. So, to wrap up Women's Month, Law Focus tonight will will unpack and tackle the issue of rape culture in South Africa. We'll be joined by a legal expert from Legal Aid SA, Angie Di Ali, as well as the Gender Equity Office at Fitz University. Do stay tuned for the upcoming discussions. But before we get into that, we start the show with the hottest legal stories of the week. Here are your legal hotspots for the evening.
0: Rounding up all all, all the top stories of the week week. It's Legal Hotspots
1: I'm joined in studio by one of our researchers for Law Focus Siabong Gantuli He'll be giving us our legal hotspots for this evening What do you have for us?
2: Well, as per usual, we have our three stories We'll start with Nelson Mandela Bay Municipality Where Mayor Athol Trolep, Speaker Jonathan Locke, And Chief Whip Wenna Sanakal Were voted out by opposition parties The ANC, the EFF, the UTM, UTM United Front and AIC, voting in the UDM's Mongameli Bobane as the new Nelson Mandela Bay mayor. The DA and its coalition partners walked out, which is almost half of the House. If a motion of no confidence is tabled against a mayor, a two-third of councillors should be present in the House to form a quorum. So a quorum is a a third of of, of the councillors in the House. So in this case, at least they should have had like 80 councillors present in the house during the, the voting process. In this regard, a quorum was not constituted. Therefore, the removal of Athol Trollope as mayor was illegal.
1: So what's the way forward now?
2: So the DA said they are going to challenge this matter in court because, well, according to what I just said, um, the quorum of like at least 80 councillors present in the house um, was not actually followed. So the removal of the executive of the Nelson Bay municipality was um, illegal indeed.
1: I mean, I need to ask, just to get a little bit of sidetrack, you know, more into the political space. Do you think perhaps the DA could have not necessarily walked out? I'm sure they could have, you know, stood there with the motion of no confidence and, and, and voted anonymously or whatsoever. Why do you think they chose to walk out?
2: They knew that they were going to lose. So, um, I mean, the DA has, has 60, 57 councillors there and they only need three so, obviously, they don't have the other three. So, they mm-hmm. knew that what's going to happen. So, they had to work out for, for them, not to, for the house or the council not to form a quorum. So, they knew what they were doing. So, the ANC went on with the process knowing exactly what are the implications. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: All right. What else do you have for us? So, we,
2: we go to Tembisa, um, east of Johannesburg, where health inspectors raided shops that are owned by foreign nationals. Well, they are being accused of selling expired products.
1: That is intense. I mean, yeah. surely that violates, you know, our consumer rights.
2: Yeah, yeah, it does. It does, because we we have a right to basic needs. As a consumer, you have a right to basic needs, which guarantees survival, adequate food, clothing, shelter, health care, education and sanitation. With this right, uh, consumers can look forward to availability of basic and prime commodities at affordable prices and good quality. So, and the second one is a right to safety. The consumer should be protected against the marketing of goods or the provision of services that are hazardous to health and life.
1: So, basically, by supplying expired goods, these two rights that you've just mentioned – this is what um, that shop in Timbisa basically is violating when it comes to our consumer rights. But I actually don't think a lot of South Africans are aware of their rights. And I think this is why we have a lot of shop owners who take advantage of these communities. Do you think maybe you could just get a little bit more into what our consumer rights actually are?
2: Well, according to the, to the consumer bill, there, there's eight top ones that I think every South African should know. The first one is the right to privacy, or a right to choose your product Right to fair and honest dealing. Well, right to fair and honest dealing is always a problem. Um, We also looked at uh, right to disclosure of information, right to fair and reasonable marketing, right to accountability by suppliers, right to fair value, good quality and safety, right to fair, just reasonable terms and conditions. And the last one would be a right to equality in the consumer market and protect against discriminatory uh marketing
1: how do how, how what else do you think could be done to get you know consumers to understand their rights
2: i think i think the the, the rights or the consumer bill should be available in all 11 official languages for mm. everyone to be able to read and understand and unfortunately in this one we have people from that area who actually were started, started looting the shops mm. and Obviously, using these products, yes. so it's a bit of a confusion because now, um, if we if we look at the 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 the, the right of, of of safety, it's now being um, under a lot of um, misunderstanding by mm-hmm. by the people. So, I think it's it's very important to have the the, the bill uh, in all eleven official languages, and
1: perhaps even maybe printed out at shops. That you know, should you feel you are uncomfortable or something, maybe you could just pick up a booklet and read and say no. But the thing, rights are here.
2: But the thing with this one, <laughs> yeah. the people who are owning, the owners of the shops yeah. don't actually... Read the, 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 the bill Correct. Before they open the shop Correct. So if you as a person Who understands the bill Comes to them And complaining about Certain products yes. Then there's a there will be A confusion there. So mm. I think that's so a it's problem
1: so, so it needs to go both ways It needs to go with The suppliers As well as the consumers Ob- Obvious,
2: obvious Alright
1: and in okay. our third story
2: Our last story We look at Adam Katzavellos Oh no Yeah <laughs> He posted a video Where he made racial comments That got a lot of South Africans angry You know He, he used the K word So let me just take the his words so he said not one k word inside f word heaven on earth you cannot beat this he took this video during his holiday increase if one uses the k word in south africa they must be charged with the crime in injuria so for me to explain this term crime injuria is uh, under south african common law defined as the act of unlawful and intentionally impairing the dignity or privacy of another. His story is more the same as Vicky Mumberg's, where she was sentenced for three years for her racial comments.
1: I mean, is it really the same as Vicky, though? Because, I mean, if we're looking at Vicky, some justified by saying, you know, she was emotional, she was traumatized, um, she was angry. As to Adam, I mean, you're looking at somebody who's all the way in Greece. All the way in Greece and he's, you know, spilling out hate speech. Is it honestly the same? This guy was comfortable in this video. He was relaxed.
2: Well, I think with with Adam, Adam knew exactly what he was doing. And I think with his brother speaking on one of the radio stations, he actually said he once heard Adam four months ago saying, well, he used that the the K word. So I think with Adam, Adam is just a racist for Mm. me. That's what I think. With Vicky... Vicky is also a racist You know I'm saying that Because Even if I'm angry I don't need to To say bad things To other people No I don't need to be a racist Because just for me To express my My Emotional trauma Yeah Mm. my emotional trauma Mm. And the the crazy thing is that Vicky used the K word To um, Against a person Who was trying to help So I think They're both racist
1: I think what we can Also agree on Is that no matter how you look at it Two different scenarios One was calm One was emotional The point is The law is still the same
2: The law is still the same
1: It's still hate speech They will still be charged In the same way
2: Yeah I think the South African justice system Should just look Deep into this You know Just to have Correct. like Because now It's, mm. it's more like loose. We don't know How where they are going to charge If they were to charge Adam Adam Katzavellus They don't know How they are going to do it Correct so, Yeah. So I think We should have Like a, 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 a Legislature that um, Goes under Someone who says such words
1: yeah and I, I mean perhaps even look at sort of even different ways of sentencing and prosecuting yeah of this course. is something that is deep within our history mm. and it's, it's it's very scarring and it's very scary
2: yeah yeah it's very it's very it's very scary i must say such so it's it's not easy to live with such people you it's know. true and, uh, it's and it's become a norm in it's our, our country become a norm,
1: yeah all right thank you Sia Bonga, for our legal hotspots for this week let's continue with the show as we discuss rape culture.
0: Rounding up all, all the top stories of the week is Legal Hotspots.
1: Rape culture is an environment in which rape is widespread. It's common and it's extensive. It's also an environment that normalizes gender based violence. And you'll often find that it's excused in the media and in popular culture. Another way to better understand rape culture is that it's perpetuated through the use of misogynistic language. It's also the way we view women's bodies and the glamorization of sexual violence, therefore creating a society that disregards women's rights and safety. Of course, we had to get your opinion about your understanding of rape culture and what should be done about the rape crisis in South Africa.
3: These people, when they're raping these girls, they're actually killing a part of this girl inside. And so it's only fair that you die too, because I'm dying, you're not Njani. And after that, you're just going to go to jail for a few years, and then you're going to be out to rape someone again. Yeah. If death sentence thing doesn't work, doesn't go through, let's just cut off your penis. No, but you don't deserve
2: it. I just revoked uh, this thing of appeal. So apparently if you raped and you find guilty, you can appeal until 15 years a jail. Like, that's the only thing I'd do. But like 15 years is a lot of years. And people change people deserve second chances. Amen.
3: So what I think is a death penalty should be granted because not only does a rape affect Mbukos Fazani for a day or a week or a month but it's a for the rest of Mbukos Whereas for the commit the rape and I change for 10 years or five years we are Puma then life just goes on for them I will change it from the minimum of 15 years to a lifetime then declare bail or appeal
2: definitely change the sentencing yeah rape I'll make it I'll definitely make it longer for the for the rapist then I feel like for the person who's rape like 100 ride yell you take him to like us because I just feel like it'll fix them afterwards, still. So it's like about taking them to like a psychologist, putting like that extra work to help them at least even say that and yeah, we're on their mind. Yeah.
0: Well, given the rate of rape in um, in our country, I'd say uh, the death penalty should be brought in for people who are convicted of rape. I think um, that will help curb the, the femicide or the rape culture that we currently see.
3: I would propose that they change it to a life sentence because the the mere re- like idea of just being released. After 15 years it doesn't amount to the damage that you're causing someone else for the rest of their life and it'll be easier for you but it doesn't give any closure to the victim thereafter. Death penalty because men are just scum. What are you doing? The fact that you can go and rape someone, it doesn't like it doesn't justify any action. There's no reason as to why you would ever want to per- per- perpetrate something like that.
0: We We have lived so much in a society where the people who have been victimized, or the people who have been raped, their their voices are not actually heard, and there are no There are people who have done it, and then when, when they've done it, they still room free, without actually having to to amend for the for, for 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 the what do you call it for the wrong things that they've done, like for the for the, for the, for raping all those kind of things. So what I would do in order to actually send a strong message to anyone who would like to. Or maybe who's currently thinking of raping someone or whatever that they're thinking of doing. What I would actually do is that the moment you are found guilty, um, the life sentence or the amount of sentence that you need to get, it needs to send a message to someone else who who would think that they need to actually commit the very same thing. So, in, in order for us to actually become better, we need to actually make sure that the kind of message that we send to people. No focus, point, point of information.
1: No one deserves to be raped. These were the words written under Kansani Maseko's post on Instagram the day she took her own life after someone felt that they had the right or were entitled to violate her body. Kansani was a student from Rhodes University who was allegedly raped by her then-boyfriend in May. She passed away at her family home in Johannesburg on the 3rd of August this year. Her death, unfortunately, fell right in the beginning of Women's Month, a time of the year when South Africans are meant to sort of reflect as well show their support for women's rights and resolve to stop the country's scourge on violence against women. I think Women's Month, and many might agree with me, has turned into an opportunity for advertisers and certain companies to target women. But if we really start to unpack what it means to be a woman in this country, it's without a doubt a far cry from the images that we see. In fact, the statistics say it all. South Africa is notorious for its levels of rape, but the true extent of the problem is actually unknown. The stats around rape are either old, with most of the data dating back as far as 20 years, or they're flawed or completely, like, you know, limited. There's simply not enough research done about rape, and that in itself is shocking. As a country, how do we tackle an issue we know nothing about. When we look at the legalities of rape, the crime of rape in South Africa is defined by the criminal law, Sexual Offences and Related Matters Amendment Act 32 of 2007. It falls under the broad category of sexual offences, which includes sexual assault, incest, flashing, um, amongst other crimes. On the line, we are joined by our legal expert, Mr. Justice Magayi, who is a criminal defense attorney for 12 years for legal aid, South Africa. Mr. Magai, we know rape is defined in Section 3 um, of the act of any person who unlawfully and intentionally commits an act of sexual penetration uh, with a compliant, with a complainant rather, without their consent, is guilty of the offense of rape. What is meant by this word intentionally in regards to this context?
4: Okay, uh, it- simply just means that you must win your body, your mind, to achieve a particular purpose. Uh, by that it means you must know that there are consequences for the act you want to partake in. However, despite the consequences, you then will your body to commit the offense of rape. Uh, by that it means you can uh, undress, undress the complainant or the victim and then insert your penis into her, her vagina or her anus. Therefore, that's the intention part where you will your body into doing something or achieving a particular purpose.
1: Do you think there is somebody that can actually rape someone without knowing, to say sort of unintentionally?
4: No, no, there's no such a thing. There's no such a thing. Because, number one, your body has to be awake. By that I mean you are sexually aroused. Yes. Or... You address the victim, and by doing that, your intention is to achieve a particular purpose, and therefore you can't say, "Eh, I I raped her, but I didn't know that I was raping her, because we know what rape is, and we know what you must do in order to achieve or commit the offense of rape itself.
1: So the the, the Sexual Offences and Related Matter Act only came into play in about 2007. And I think that's, that's, quite, that, that's quite recent. What does this say in regards to our legal system, as well as maybe the country, about the attitude and seriousness of rape?
4: Uh, rape is taken very seriously, man, because, indeed, so you are right, uh, Act 32 of 2007 came into effect on the 17th of December 2007. However, before that, there was an act which governed the issue of rape and uh, sexual assault. It was a sexual offenses act. Yes. Uh, it came uh, from the apartheid uh, years, and then from '94 onwards, it was still in the law books. The law only changed because constitutionally it became a problem because rape was only defined as a man.
1: And, yes.
4: Yes, uh, unlawfully sexually penetrating a woman only. And the Constitutional Court said that discriminates against men, and that's why Parliament then came up with Sexual Offenses and Related Matters Act, the 2007. However, there, before then, as I stated, there was another law. So I wouldn't say that we don't take rape seriously in the country. We, we do take rape seriously. Uh, Parliament just changed it in line with what the Constitutional Court said in the Massina case.
1: Mm. And as a criminal defense attorney, what is the minimum sentence for rape?
4: Okay, Uh, we've got Act 105 of 1997, that's called the Minimum Sentences Act, uh, which came into effect in 1997. Uh, It states the following, that if you're a first offender and you've been convicted of having sexual intercourse or raping the victim who's an adult, not a minor adult, and you, you did it only once, that's 10 years for the first offender. Then, if you're a second offender, 15 years, third offender, 20 years, it goes up. However, it also provides that people or offenders can be sentenced to a life sentence if, number one, you rape the same victim more than once, or you have intercourse with a minor. A minor is anyone under the age of 16, wherein she does not consent, because she can't consent legally. Then, if it's a gang rape, more than one person raping the same victim, That's a life sentence. Or if it's rape and then murder, that's a life sentence. Uh, I then think of the Kensani Maseko case. That that would then attract the life sentence if it goes on to trial per se.
1: Mm, let's actually continue the conversation <clears throat> around Kensani. I mean, we, we recently faced, um, you could say, a torment, you know, uh, mm-hmm. when her when her passing came. You know, she was allegedly raped by her boyfriend at the time. What happens in a situation like this, where a victim of rape yes. takes their own life while, you know, a case has been opened?
4: Yeah, now, that becomes very complicated because I like the part where you said the alleged yes, perpetrator, which means then, The reasonable doubt, and now the problem is that the complainant or the victim, the one who would have confirmed the alleged uh, incident of rape, is not there anymore. Mm. And if it was only the two of them present during the alleged rape, then it becomes a bit of a problem for the state to prove its case, unless there are or unless there's DNA evidence or medical evidence which confirms that actually his semen was found uh, in her vagina or.
1: And, I mean, what happens, I mean, for example, she has reported the case to un- the university. Does that somehow um, assist with her case?
4: Uh, the the problem is uh, the Constitution guarantees, uh, amongst others, one of the rights is that a- a- any person who's been accused of innocence has a right to test the state's case. And by test, means he or she must be allowed to cross-examine. Now, Kansani is no more. There are allegations which she made. Now, the lawyer for the boyfriend cannot now uh, uh, cross-examine her because she has passed on. Then the issue becomes, can the court accept the statement which she made? Then that's when the issue of hearsay comes into operation. Because we we have a law or an act which governs uh, uh, circumstances where the person who made the statement is normal. Did she make a dying declaration or did she just make a mere statement? That will be decided in court and then the court will decide how much weight can the court attach to Kensani's statement which she made to the university. Was it commissioned? Was it made under oath? What, what is happening? That's where I, I, I think legally it will be a very interesting case.
1: I have to definitely agree with you on that one. It is definitely also a learning curve as well for, for the legalities of rape as well. I mean, Ndadeel, let's just have our final question. I mean, from a legal point of view, what must a person do or what must a victim do who has been raped to sort of build a stronger case? Okay.
4: Very good question and very crucial and important question. Number one. The area where the rape took place is a crime scene itself. Let's say it took place in the bedroom. That's a crime scene. Don't tamper with the crime scene. Then number two, your body itself, as the alleged victim of rape, also becomes a crime scene. So number one, don't bath. Report immediately to the nearest police station. If you can't, then call someone you trust and then tell them what has happened to you. So if you, you allege that your boyfriend raped you, then you must tell, uh, let's say it's your aunt, it's your friend, or security officers the same story that like, no, it was it was Tabang who did this to me and this is how it happened. Then that's called corroboration. That's called a sex report. So you don't tamper with the crime scene. You don't tamper with the crime scene on your body. Then you then narrate the same version to. Someone you trust as soon as possible. Then you go to the police station. Then at the police station, you then tell them you've just been raped. You want to open a case of rape. And then the police will then quickly take your statement and also send you to the nearest hospital where a sexual crime kit will then be used to collect all the DNA evidence or material without breaking the chain of custody. That means that whatever they do, they must record step by step so that in court, nothing will be questioned insofar as how it was collected. And thereafter, uh, the victim will then have to repeat the same story inside the courtroom. That's the, the the best way to make sure
1: that you bring a stronger you build a stronger case in court against the alleged rape. Wonderful. Thank you so much and Magai. You know that is such crucial information and I think it's something a lot of victims don't actually consider. You know, they that's I agree with
4: you. Ma'am.
1: No, they do they definitely not consider it. Thank you so much, Mr. Magai. That was one of our legal experts from Legal Aid S.A. If you do need any legal assistance, you can call them on the toll-free Legal Aid advice line. That's on 800 110 After this, we'll be discussing examples of rape culture as well as the effects of secondary victimization with the Gender Equity Office from Wits University.
0: Law Focus, handing you your rights.
1: Sunny's statement highlights a growing concern as well as what one might actually call the foundation of rape culture in our country, and that is victim blaming. This habit where we assume that the victim is equally to blame for the abuse when in reality abuse is a conscious choice made by the abuser her passing did not only present us with the reality of sexual violence in this country but also rape culture in universities and how rape is handled on and off campus as well as the policies in place
0: law no focus point point of information.
1: We are continuing the conversation around rape culture. I am joined in studio by two lovely ladies that work for the Gender Equity Office. That's Silia Moza, who is an intern at for Advocacy and Student Engagement, as well as Zonaka Furani, who is an investigation officer. Welcome to the show, ladies.
3: Thank you. Thank you very
1: much for having me. So us. let's get straight into it. The first thing I want to know, what is your definition of rape culture?
3: Um, Rape culture is the normalization or sociological definition or space or concept idea where we normalize, justify, condone, explain away rape, sexist, misogynist behavior that contributes or constantly pins um, the responsibility for rape, for sexual violence on women and away from perpetrators.
1: Can you give me an example of such sort of stigmas that we perpetuate onto other women?
3: so rape culture and so for example in families it will be where a child is forced to forgive an uncle or a grandfather or a father or a cousin who has assaulted him or her Um, in churches for example it will be where we are encouraged to pray for rapists without any real consequences in society or in secular society you'll see it in questions such as what were you wearing where were you going what were you doing did you tempt him Um, were you drunk what did you think would happen
1: And as the the Gender Equity Office, uh, you guys deal quite a lot with students. Can you just give me sort of a brief description as to what you guys do?
5: Okay, so we offer a number of services, one of them being um, a space where victims or rather complainants can come through and relay instances of sexual harassment either on or off campus. So this includes rape, um, gender discrimination, any form of sexual violence. We also have counseling services. And actually in terms of the counseling services, um, our office is unique in that it's the only office, I think... Um, no, I'm very sure of this um, in the country, in that it has an on, an in-house um, psychologist to deal with the
1: trauma of sexual violence and gender-based violence. So, um, so in that regard, let's 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 just take it down a level to um, the recent passing of uh, Kensani Maseko. Yeah. So, you mentioned that you guys offer sort of counselling and services mm-hmm. to to rape cases that happen off and on campus. Do you think? Um, Certain universities could use that sort of sort of programming to sort of help them combat certain issues that happen. When you look at issues like Kensani Maseko, what could have been done differently that the gender-based equity office offers?
3: I think certainly universities do. I don't think it's an option for Mm -hmm. any institution Institution, to not have a centralized um, office for gender based harm because it's such a normalized phenomenon in our society. Um, So with Kintani, what would have, I don't know, what might have helped is access to counseling services for one uh, that are free and provided by the university a process or a procedure for protecting and assisting complainants that is complainant led mm-hmm. where complainants are able to guide and have a safe space for disclosing their experiences um for example as well geo is able to um request or procure uh, a, some, an order similar to a restraining order for someone. So if you're re-traumatized by constantly seeing your attacker or your alleged attacker, there are services that Geo has that can that they can put in place for that. If it has to go to hearing, for example, our office is structured in such a way that we ensure that your respondent, your attacker, and yourself never have to bump into each other while that process is happening. So we are designed to avoid a re-traumatization mm. of 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 survivors and victims come forward to us. So a person knowing that that kind of structure exists and is in place and that within that structure there are counseling services or psychosocial services, I think assists a lot.
1: Mm, no, definitely. I can agree with that. And as an investigation officer, um, could you maybe take us through those procedures that happen, you know, when I come to you as a victim? Okay.
3: so uh, So a person will walk in, Um, to the office and they will request to see me what we usually do is that we see them together with our psychosocial officer Miss Maria Wanyane and she will then sort of be a first point of contact to help the survivor process their feelings how they're feeling whether or not they feel up to whatever intervention they would like to request we then advise the survivor that there are certain options available to them they can go for a non-formal process like requesting an apology getting mediation or simply getting the person moved away from the same residence etc etc or they might want to go the full way and ask for a disciplinary hearing Uh, the disciplinary panel has the power to expel uh, to exclude to dismiss to suspend permanently for a certain amount of time um so the powers that the disciplinary panel has by way of sanction are pretty broad so the survivor will tell us that they would like to institute a case we then notify the respondent that these allegations have been made against them that they have a right to reply within five Days should they so choose to, but at this point the investigation hasn't been finalised. Thirty days after that letter has been sent out, or that notice has been sent out, and this is thirty business days, not thirty calendar days, so weekends, public holidays excluded. Um, we then reach out. We then um, send both parties the investigation report. Thereafter, the respondent would then have an opportunity to uh, comment or respond again. A hearing panel is then instituted with three people: one from the sexual harassment and advisory committee, a member of Senate or a senator, and then if it's a staff member, a staff representative, if it's a student, a student representative, the hearing is held. Um, Parties lead or rather give their version of events. Um, And then the panel comes to a close, makes a sanction, and that sanction is then enforced.
1: And these hearings, do they in any way correspond with um, our laws as a country? Could we involve the police or does it stand alone, you know, as an institution sort of hearing?
3: So a complainant has the option to institute separate legal proceedings or criminal proceedings outside the process but our process again designed to avoid re-traumatization is very non-legalistic so it's more inquisitorial so you generally don't have lawyers showing up uh we generally unless you get special permission we generally don't have a cross-examination or that kind of testing of that evidence the panel wants to find out what the truth is um so they will in- so it's more inquisitorial we ask questions what happened uh, and, and tell us about this and cetera, et etc cetera. but it isn't that sort of adversarial type of thing that you would see like on Boston you where know, everybody objects and things get really heated so it's really designed to be as non-legalistic as possible but if you would like to start uh, formal legal proceedings outside of our process you're welcome to do that or it's open to you to do so.
1: See, so lem- see, rather, let me pose this question to you. Uh, sh- you spoke about um, this this you know, re traumas, I rather mm, 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 English sometimes catching us. You, you talk about, you know, this trauma mm-hmm. that, that can reoccur. And something that came to me alongside when we talk about rape culture, when we talk about rape, is the idea of secondary victimization. Mm-hmm. Can you walk us through that? What is that? I think
5: it largely speaks to this idea of a victim not feeling safe even after the encounter of um sexual violation so it can happen in a number of instances I think this idea of having to bump in bump bump into your perpetrator is something that currently um is a major major point of re-traumatization and also putting the responsibility on victims is another way that victims often feel re-traumatized right so they're being asked as to what it was they were doing where they were what they were wearing were they drinking all those things make it feel as though they're somehow responsible for having been violated which we all know is not the case because the only person who should bear the responsibility is the perpetrator
1: and if we had to look at that um, victim blaming mm-hmm. in a university space, what would it look like?
5: Um, it's very much the same. And I think in terms of the university space, it's large, it largely undermines students, right, to, you know, associate freely. So this idea to of students not being able to go out, enjoy themselves, while constantly um, being told that students should be safe. And what does that mean? They shouldn't go out at night, they shouldn't go out in certain
1: outfits, Um, they should rape proof themselves, so to speak. Yeah. And how can we combat that, both women and men, how can we we combat this uh, second victimization?
5: I think it speaks to a a broader conversation around rape culture and around how we view sexual violence and how we view um, women and men. So because women are often victims of sexual violence, um, and this is not to say that other are men aren't victims of sexual violence, we just find that more often than not men are the perpetrators in both instances, right, so it's very important for us to hold men accountable, to hold men um responsible and to change those attitudes. So this idea of placing the blame on a victim for me is very problematic, and it speaks to this idea that men are inherently more valuable, and everything that they do shouldn't be questioned,
1: right, yeah. And if I could perhaps maybe look at the policies Mm -hmm. uh, with which institutions have in regards to rape as well as sexual harassment, gender based violence altogether, what would you change?
3: well, I think ours is, it's still in the teething stages. I mean, it was only created in 2014. It, mm-hmm. it was only created in 2014. And even then, it was created in, as a response mm-hmm. to a spate of sexual harassment incidences that had been happening on campus and that were gaining us national attention. So I think VITS should be commended in that for being so responsive in that instance. Um, but I think that procedures, one, should be broad in their definitions and recognize the different forms of sexual harassment and sexual violence, and that trauma doesn't look the same for everybody, that it is complex, it is difficult, and that victims survive and relate to their experiences in different ways. I think that it should be complainant-centered and that you create a space where survivors are able to come in and feel safe, because we know that underreporting reporting is such a massive aspect and problem when it comes to sexual violence. Complainants don't come forward because they justifiably don't trust criminal justice systems or justice systems in general. And what what do you
1: think could be done about that, about the fact that we don't actually trust our justice system? Do you think that actually helps in regards to rape culture? You know, nothing's going to happen to him, what's the point?
3: No, absolutely. I think it entrenches it. And I think it it validates um, sexual violence from perpetrators. And they begin to feel that what I'm doing should be normal. And it contributes to the normalization of that. But then it also contributes on the flip side to normalization also in survivors' minds, that this is not something punishable by law. So it didn't happen. It wasn't as bad as I feel that it was. I'm exaggerating. I'm being dramatic. But if we normalize and we put in place, I mean, laws have such an incredible normative power. You know, if something is legal people start believing that it's right and that it's perm- that it's permissible. Apartheid it was legal. Homophobia was legal for a very long time. So until the legal system begins to issue public statements in the form of sentencing, in the form of taking sexual violence seriously, in the form of preventing re-traumatization or secondary victimization, in the form of magistrates and judges that are gender-sympathetic and gender-trained, until that statement is made, the social views and perceptions and feelings and cultures that evolve or grow around sexual misconduct and violence are never going to shift
5: also on that point it's interest, it's interesting because this is a conversation that we were having earlier mm-hmm. how in the case of south africa we o- often have the social perceptions override this idea of law mm-hmm. and a regulatory framework Right? so um women's rights this idea to live and um, exist in a safe space Um, where rape is criminalized, exists in the constitution, right? But somehow that's not always, it doesn't always reflect Mm -hmm. in women's um, recourse to to the legal and policing system. And you then have to ask yourself that why is that the case? So it speaks to patriarchy, institutionalized patriarchy that still doesn't think that
1: women and victims of sexual violence are worthy of the redress. And ladies, if um, a a student Mm -hmm. is listening right now or even a listener who just wants to get involved within the, the gender equity office, how do they get a hold of you? Well,
5: we're situated on the 20th floor of University Corner. We do have a program for volunteers. They're called the Gender Advox. So that's part of our student engagement project. So they can come through, they can leave their email address at reception and we'll get in contact with them. We also have a number number of posters in and um, around campus. So they can just get the details from those posters and give us
3: a call. And on our website, right? Yes, we we do have a website. Website.
1: Thank you so much for joining us on Law Focus tonight, ladies. Thank you for having us. Thank you
5: for having us.
1: That was Sihle and Zonaka from from the Gender Equity Office. If you do want to get a hold of them, you can get a hold of them on 011 717 9790. That's 011 717 9790. They do also have a website, so make sure that if you do have any questions regarding anything on campus as well as off campus...
0: Law Focus, And you your rights. Law Focus, point, point of information.
1: On the line we have Mayor Angie Di Ali. Mayor Angie is a spokeswoman for various organisations, a health and relationship counsellor, a TV personality and of course a highly respected HIV and gender-based violence activist. Welcome to Law Focus, Mayor.
6: Thank you so much for having me and good afternoon to your viewers.
1: Ma, let's, let's jump straight into it. You know, South Africa has been dubbed the rape capital of the world with figures that would actually terrify anybody. You know, when we're told that one in three South African women have been raped, w- what do you think these figures, Ma? what do you think about these figures? You know, you would think there's some sort of sense of urgency or call to action to better protect the citizens of this country, but there isn't. What do you think this actually says about us as a country in regards to rape?
6: I want to start by saying South Africa as a country has always been slow in responding to issues that are taken into women, uh, in a sense because we are a patriarchal society. From the nature of our culture, our race relations, the apartheid era, all these things encompassed have put us in a situation that we are in right now. That's the first thing. Secondly, the essence of agency is not necessarily there because we have adopted violence as a culture and a lifestyle. And I'll tell you why I'm saying that. Um, We've just had a discussion here at my office where we're talking about um, we want to create an intergenerational dialogue where we get the elder ones, the the people who were born in the 50s and 60s, to talk to the people who were born in the 80s, 90s. You know why? Because we want to address how relationships are driven. When we were growing up, there was the Pantulas and the ivies. And it was a culture that if you are in love with a panzula guy, he's going to be violent, he will beat you up, he can sleep with you when you don't want, or you are subjected to a relationship that is controlling, you are controlled. Your parents accepted it, his parents accepted it, your friends accepted it, it was a norm. If he's an Ivy it's different. he'll treat you with respect, he'll honor you, he will worship the ground you walk on. So this rape culture... Is, is coming out of a culture that has existed for many, many, many years. And it's making it difficult even for the legislators of our country and the judiciary to visit it by looking at the mistakes of the past and correcting them accordingly.
1: Mele, let's get into the legislation um, and that conversation. What do you think actually the South African government needs to do in regards to the laws that we have, you know, to better control rape culture? And do you actually think the laws that we have in place contribute to it?
6: I think of the laws that we have in the country, we have about 50%. 60% of the laws contribute positively. 40% of the laws are old laws that are still standing, that we're looking more at, Defending the person who is committing the act. If we were to turn around the law where where the law is favorable to the victim or the survivor and make sure that the punishable, uh, the offense is punishable by law to the offender.
1: As an activist, yes, I'm still on the line, I'm still on the line, just digesting what you're saying. And, you know, as an an activist uh, and a survivor, as well as an educator of of sexual violence and and rape, through your personal experience, could you talk us through how the justice system dealt with your case at the time? My my
6: personal case was not dealt with uh, in a positive manner. And that is what got me to stand up and talk about it. Because firstly, uh, one was told that, what did you do? How did you provoke the person? What did you say to this person? How were you dressed? If somebody who's older than you stays in the same yard with you, is your cousin and rapes you in your yard where you are supposed to be protected by them, your protector. And you are married and your husband also uh violates you by physically abusing you and emotionally and psychologically. Uh when you are also told that you are a married woman, these are some of the things. You know, in the language of our parents, to say, when you are married, your husband owns you. I had to start learning for myself to say, what does the law say? What is mm. the World Health Organization saying? What is the legislation in South Africa saying? What is the judicial system able to do? You know, and that is why I became verbal, and that is why I started talking about what I went through. And that's why I walked myself out of those situations to go to a place where I started from scratch, lost everything, started from scratch, went back home so that I could refine myself for who is Nvidia. Who does Nvidia want to become in the future? What does she stand for? And what does she believe she deserves to have as a woman? And for my, I was doing it for my daughter so that tomorrow I'm able to teach my daughter the value of her life and the understanding of reporting a case and how to report it and how to follow it up. And and by so doing, those things began to change. My lifestyle changed. I was able to become a better person. But also that's why I'm able to look after other women who are going through the same things to say, here's a space in our office where you can find comfort, we can assist you. We will bend backwards to get you to the right people, to do the right things and treat you rightly. But however, my issue is we need to work with our student lawyers, we need to work with the Vets Law Society because we consult with them all the time. We need to mobilize young women, train them to understand what the judicial system is like. We, need, we are working with our police station in New Orleans where our office is located. We work with our patrolers. We are mostly women in, in our area. Because we are trying to say we need to get women to understand firstly their value as human beings. Mm. Secondly, there are value as mothers and daughters. They are value as women who have to stand up and run businesses. Their value as in terms of their skin and their body. It belongs to them. They are in control of their bodies. If there's a perpetrator, how a man speaks to you already can lead to rape. How a man looks at you can be literate. So when you pick up a personality trait from somebody who's around you all the time, you need to report it and it needs to be taken seriously that you are feeling threatened around that person. And that person needs to be um, called in for questioning. Mm, because right now we have a system where we're saying we've got a book of sexual offenders who are molesting our children and raping our children. But we don't have a book for rapists.
1: You know, let's, let's actually talk about that because there is a constant conversation around rape prevention. Uh, you, you see it in schools and in institutions of higher learning as well as government campaigns that will tell women how to avoid being raped. They will talk about how many women were raped last year and not how many men raped women. I mean, surely there is something wrong with this kind of approach. And how do we change this narrative? Uh, to be able
6: to change the narrative is to be able to
1: engage both ways.
6: Uh, And that's what I'm talking to you about when I'm saying we're going to have an intergenerational dialogue. In the intergenerational dialogue, we're having men, older men, younger men. We're having older women and younger women. And we're having people from the judiciary. We're bringing people from social services. Because we want people to know that there are shelters that are available. But we want people to know that a man who treats a woman wrong knows that the woman knows their rights and that they should not. So that men also understand that they will be persecuted left, right and center. Whether by speaking, whether by acting, they will be persecuted. But as long as the legislation does not allow us to have that that says preventing is better than cure, that prevents a man from speaking to you, just speaking to you the way that they like, and it becomes a case and they can be persecuted and put in prison and be rehabilitated on the manner of approach towards a woman. Secondly, on how to deal with a woman from a sexual point of view, That a woman is not a body that is just walking up and down for you to decide when you want to sleep with her and it's okay. That a woman is an individual who owns her body, her soul, and her mind. When you violate a woman's body, you are violating a woman's soul and a woman's spirit. And you're actually destroying generations Mm. of people that are still going to be born from that person. Because that person's mindset has shifted. The element of anger, fear, frustration, worry... All of those things work with that woman. You have actually taken everything away from that person. Their chances of surviving and becoming a better individual, even education-wise, are very slim. And that is why women will eventually commit suicide, because they feel worthless. Your body is so sacred that it's being violated. Somebody has taken all your dignity, all your self-respect away from you. They have damaged your internal body.
1: May, you know, you, you, you touched on something that uh, is very personal. I think it's something that, of course, is in, is in the news at the moment and is, as well as uh, in the eyes of many young women, especially in high institutions, about just the act of rape taking away from a person, their soul, their personality, their dignity. Let's talk about the health issues around sexual violence. Many young women and, and men are affected um, you know, by by rape, by getting HIV, or, or suffering severe depression after being victims of rape. You know, and perhaps maybe because they don't take action soon enough, or there are just not certain things in place. Is it is it a lack of education as an individual, or is it the lack of support from our health department? It, before
6: it's a lack of of education and it's a lack of support mm. the support structure on the body of a man and I was part of the people that wrote the life orientation books right and from an early age in school we are teaching young women and young boys about their bodies how they are structured and I'm a nurse by profession so you start structuring the body and how the body works and how the body can be violated, and what are the elements of the body that can be weakened by a sexual violent act. And then you understand that psychologically and emotionally, rape, once it it, it takes the dignity of your physical body, it affects your mind because now you start asking yourself, was I behaving wrong because the culture, that's why I started talking about our patriarchal culture, the culture of our society saying whatever happens to a woman, they provoked it until that narrative changes. And we are saying to boys, you have no right over my body until I give you permission. And when I give you permission for a kiss, I don't mean fondling my body. When I give you permission for, 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 for intimacy to kiss and fondly, I don't give you permission to penetrate Once men, young men, older women, husbands and fathers and grandparents drive that point home even from early stages, even from primary school, that everybody's body physically needs to be respected, everybody's mind needs to be respected. We love a different culture. But having to talk about how it affects you within the culture of the campuses. I believe that, unfortunately, when our children go to campus, the mindset is that I am free at last. And so when we enter campuses as young people, we're thinking that because we have freedom, we can test drive with anything and everything. And we allow ourselves to find ourselves in places where the level of safety is not as guaranteed as at your home, where you know which when I walked into my parents' yard, the gate is locked, my father is there, there's anybody at the door, my father or my older brother will go first to the door before I appear. When you are there, you are on your own. You don't know self-defense. You don't know how to protect yourself. The school itself does not have the necessary safety. There is security for property at universities, but there's no security for women.
1: What about, what about in the case of um, the late passing of um, Kensani Masekome and having to know that that was her boyfriend? It wasn't just necessarily a stranger that walked into her dormitory.
6: My point exactly. When I'm saying to you, when you are at home, you know your brother and your father will stand up for you. When you are at university you are you have the freedom to date whomever you like. But that's why I'm saying, when you are dating somebody, you have not opened the door to saying my body belongs to you. Mm. Even when you are married, and I'm talking as a woman who was married at the age of 19. If I don't make want to make love, that's why it's called making love. Making love must be exciting. It must be a joyous experience. It must be something that you also enjoy and you benefit from it. But when it's rape, you benefit nothing. You are forced to do what you don't want to do. So that guy himself had a problem with himself. He had no respect for this young woman. He had no respect for what he deemed a relationship. Because if he understood that Kenzani uh, uh, agreeing to a relationship with him was not agreeing to sleeping with him whenever he pleased even if he had asked that day and she said no, he should have known that no means no. I, right now, I'm not in that mood.
1: Absolutely. Thank you point. so much, Mayor Angie. We really appreciate you know, the time you have taken to do this interview with us. And you know, please continue the hard work that you do in regards to you know, spreading the word and educating young people and old people just about gender-based violence. Thank you so much, Mayor.
6: Thank you so much for
2: having me. May God bless you, bless you and continue doing the great work that you are doing there. Thank you. Listening Thank you. to Law Focus? Connect with Vowfam88.1 on Twitter and Facebook. Be your own lawyer.
1: As we reflect on tonight's discussion, we spoke to C. Hlielmo and Zonaka Nechufolani from the Gender Equity Office, as well as social activist Angie Ali, who highlighted how evident it is, That rape culture is deeply rooted in our structures, our history, our homes, and our daily conversations as society. We then also discussed the legalities of rape with uh, Mr. Justice Magai from Legal Aid SA, who walked us through the process to ensure a strong court case when it comes to reporting rape. The first thing you'd want to do is, of course, wash off the injustice that has been committed to your body. But your body is the most crucial evidence, along with the area in which the rape was committed. Just sure not to temper with that scene the area as well as your body and as soon as you can Go to the police station and report your case. If you can't get to the police station, report what happened to you to someone that you trust. And remember, once you've opened your case, make sure you go to the hospital to receive the sexual crime kit. I mean, I cannot stress this enough. This is the most crucial thing because this is what will be used in regards to collecting all the DNA evidence that is needed. It's not enough to simply say, stop rape. We have to take a long and hard look at ourselves as well as our society. We need to know that if it's not yes, then it's no, and therefore it is rape. From our producer, Bulali Giacob, our technical producer, Kudrano Sarame, as well as our Law Focus researcher researchers, Nduli, and myself, Veronica Makhwadi, thank you so much for tuning into Law Focus. Please join us as we honor and acknowledge the women who have been sexually abused and those that had their rights violated. We know that there are many who are unnamed, but we stand by them. Kenza Nimasegu. Feze Gila Kuzwayo, also known as Kwezi, Karabo Mugwen, Tembisile Yende, Hannah Cornelius, Renee Roman, Anin Boizen, my mother, my sister, my daughter, my grandmother, my aunt, my cousin, you.
2: Law Focus focus on on BarFan. 88.1. Point of Information.
0: Law Focus Podcast.